Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Here at FX Medicine, we strive to remain clinically relevant. So stay in touch with us and please let us know how we're doing. We love hearing from you. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Annalise Corse, who's a medical scientist, lecturer, naturopath and author based in Sydney. She's worked as a medical scientist at Charles Sturt University, the Australian Institute of Sport, Australian Biologics and both public and private hospital pathology laboratories. Annalise has been a practising naturopath and lecturer since 2008. She lectures in human biochemistry and the medical sciences for ACNT and SSNT, as well as conference and seminar presenting for fellow health professionals. Annalise is a past board member of the NHAA and is on the scientific advisory board of the MIND Foundation. Most recently, Annalise has contributed to Leah Heckman's textbook called Clinical Naturopathic Medicine, due for publication in 2018. And I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine, Annalise. How are you? I'm really well, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, today we're going to be talking about something which I've got to say I went care when I first heard it, and that's the fourth trimester of pregnancy. Yes. What is the fourth trimester? Oh, it's that thing that nobody tells you about when you're (laughs) pregnant. (laughs) That's what it is. And it's that trimester that most obstetricians say lasts about six weeks and then you get a checkup but in reality it's roughly about 12 months if not more after a baby is born and it also affects people that didn't birth the baby so it affects fathers it affects say um, a same-sex couple and it might be the female that didn't birth the baby it might be the mother that didn't birth a baby but needed a surrogate, or it might be the older siblings of a new baby. So it's everyone in that immediate family unit. You know, like, you you know, I've been to antenatal classes. The mother's had a bubby. Congratulations mm-hmm. on your newborn bubby. Now, see you later. Why yes. is there no postnatal care? And I, and I should qualify this. I have actually mes- met a couple of people that said in their area there was postnatal care, but it certainly mm. isn't mainstream. It is not mainstream. And if you are lucky enough to have, say, a GP clinic or a naturopathy practice or a natural healthcare practitioner, even a doula or a midwife that focuses on this, you are in a rare segment of the population. Mm. Um I'm lucky that I'm married to a very orthodox doctor and I've got a lot of very orthodox doctor friends. And when I asked them about this after I had a child and said, why, 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 their main reason, well, there were two. They said there's a limited healthcare dollar. Cost, yeah. And the main other reason for this is that there's this attitude that people should be able to look after themselves with regard to their own nutrition, getting family support after a baby is born. 
And for them clinically in primary medical care, there are competing clinical priorities. So obviously the baby is incredibly vulnerable, so that's a clinical priority. If the mother has um, postnatal depression, that's a clinical priority. But this whole idea of other things maybe not going quite so right in that 12 months after a baby's born, it's probably not thought of as a huge clinical problem. And I've also found out that it's not really considered as part of medical education. Unless you go off and do obstetrics or GP training, it's really not brought up in many other specialisations. That seems a little bit like robbing Peter to pay Paul to me. Um... Yeah, look, it's, it's a spectrum. That's the thing. And it's a, there's a spectrum of issues that people face when they have a child. And I guess modern medicine is still treating the very end point of that spectrum, which is things like postnatal depression. There's a huge amount of grey in here and really the only people that are going to do something about it are those couples or parents that are proactive or particularly if a GP finds that there's something going on, it'll be a referral to maybe an allied health professional. But it's really... Mm. um, I think that there's a huge amount of investment, not not just in the healthcare dollar, but just in terms of, uh, from an ethical point of view, a, a compassionate point of view, that there is a lot going on in this fourth trimester that has huge effects and huge sequelae for the for that family and potential health consequences later on in life if it's not dealt with at this particular time. It's such a vulnerable time. It's, there's a huge amount of physiological vulnerability, your your health deteriorates in a lot of cases. And if, if you're not on top of it and you're not able to be on top of it and the resources aren't there to keep you on top of it, things can go really, really badly for people in this phase. I've got to just talk about my own experiences with my wife. And, you know, even Lee, when I remember we came home with Aiden and Aiden was fussing at the breast when he was feeding and things like that. Lee had a cracked nipple. And so there's mm-hmm. this added stress, this concern about, am I doing something wrong? Am I not, or am yeah. I not doing something right? Have I oh, not yeah. gotten the hang of something? Because everything was rosy yeah. in the hospital. There was the mm-hmm. support around you and everybody went, yeah. no, this is how you do it. But there was no demonstration of competency, if you like, from the early Mm -hmm. days to the later days of feeding and routine and all of that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. And I can Mm -hmm. still remember Lee being at the end of her tether in tears. Mm -hmm. We had to get a lactation consultant to come around. And I I vaguely remember Lee having a night off. You know, she just had a couple of nights in a place where there was care for her. Now, we were very lucky to access that. I I know. And I guess in the old days, we probably had people around us, you know, particularly for the females, maybe not Mm. so much for the males, but females had so much more support and not necessarily from the medical profession, but they would have had um, aunts, mothers, grandmothers, sisters, and they would have had a village around them. And we've lost this. We've lost it. We've lost it. And I saw this most beautiful artwork recently and it was a drawing of a woman in her bed with her newborn and there were a lot of maybe five different pairs, sets of women's hands and one was covering her with a blanket, one was providing her with food, one was bringing her a drink. And I looked at it and I thought, no, what? What is this? This is not 
<laughs> nobody has this, really. Maybe in hospital mm. because you've got midwives around you, but certainly not when you get home. You might be you you'll be lucky to have your mother visit in most cases. You'd be lucky to have a friend pop by in some instances. I mean, everybody's situation is different, but I guess what I'm talking about is for those people that don't have the support, Mm. um, that's when this fourth trimester, this vulnerable phase, can really create a lot of havoc. Are there any stats on how Mm. many mothers feel isolated in the early fourth trimester? Look, I don't know a quantifiable stat, but I know from a lot of the, the the qualitative research out there um, when they survey, when qualitative researchers um, research and and look into surveys with mothers and questionnaires, the majority are dissatisfied with postnatal services. And in particular with regard to nutrition, in particular with regard to breastfeeding, and in particular with regard to regaining health, if you like, regaining, you know, what's normal? What's what's norm what's the normal path for getting back to where I was? And if I'm not getting back to where I was, does that mean that there's a problem? And and there's I think the other big problem is there's so much focus, particularly for her, on the baby and wanting to know is what my baby is doing normal? And these days we have the internet to turn to, which um, our foremothers wouldn't have had. And that opens a whole can of worms as well because you start reading forums and you start reading opinion pieces from everybody. Everybody, And in the end, it's probably just best to not look at anything and just get back in tune with your own self, your own intuition getting rid of all that distraction that's there and just focusing back in on what's in front of you, the baby, trying to read its cues. And there's a whole lot of intuition that comes into this. And sometimes the the best advice people give you is just is not, well, here's a routine that I did, try this. It's more of a, well, maybe you just need to, you'll find your own way. Mm. You will find your own way. Listen to what you think is best. And this is starting to happen a little bit more, I think, than, say, in the decades early where it was all about, well, this way is the best method. Yeah. It's the baby-wearing method. It's the This method is the best method. I think we're getting away from that a bit more now. Yeah, yeah. What about things like the ease of travel and so therefore the distance of the, mm. pa- the new mm. parents from their parents? Mm. That you know, kids move away from home and they go and start a life somewhere else. That's um, right. Not the least of which is you know because of um, access to work and and you know finance and things like that. But what about our expectations about the extended family? Uh, have they majorly changed? Yeah. Look, I think they have changed a lot. Um, the village really doesn't exist as much as it used to, particularly on the family plane. And that's usually because, like you said, we do move away. We are far more globalised than we used to be. Our village might be on the other side of the world in a FaceTime call or a Skype session these days. Um, And it's fantastic that we have that technology. But I think 
it gets back to the fact that we're, most of us are having children a little bit older, very much so in westernised countries. So therefore that makes the grandparents older. They may have their own health issues that, or they're just not as energetic as they were when they were, say, in their 40s or 50s. And they're not able to assume the role that they maybe want to assume. They may want that, but they just can't do that yeah. because of their own health issues and their age and their distance away from you. So the grandparents are no longer youngish. Um, I think the other thing with the double income, no kids, when because that was that's what the majority of us in Australia were before we became parents. We're highly independent, and there's this huge, um, I guess, problem in asking for help. It's still seen as a sign of weakness to ask for help. So, because you you became you were in this professional background, you were highly competent, and then all of a sudden you've given birth to a baby, and you have absolutely no idea, no idea. what's right, what's mm. wrong, and then. To actually go and ask for help, you may have never asked for help ever mm. because you're just so used to achieving, um, producing and being the fixer at work, depending on what your role was and the type of profession you were in. I really find that people just don't want to look weak. And so the village might be there in some way, but it may not be getting access as much as we would like it there for us. Yeah. There is are significant stresses on the male, the the pressure to be the bed breadwinner when mum's at home looking after the baby, and there's the yeah. expectations of financial and um you know success, and we don't know what to do. We're looking no. at this baby going, man, you've come in between me and my wife. Well, I think I think for males, like a lot of the fathers that I've spoken to, say things like, I don't know how I can help. Mm. Um, I want to be helpful, but I don't know. I mean, they can't breastfeed. They can't, and there's a lot of things that physically the father just can't do because the physiology of the mother is that the mother feeds the baby. So the other thing is, I truly feel very passionate about this: is that the the male and the father is just as important in all of this as as the mother. So this fourth trimester idea absolutely includes the father and it includes their physical, their nutritional and their mental health. There is some um, there are some studies and reports coming out in the literature about postnatal depression affecting fathers, that it's not just a female thing. Um, and that's obviously not necessarily related to hormone fluctuations and these sorts of things, but you know, the, the psychological transition to becoming a parent. So it's something that I think as we go further into the future, um, I think the men's health for new fathers or any father, whether it's the second, third or fourth child, is probably going to become more of a um, focus and I think that that's really, really important. Um, fathers, so many fathers that I know, modern-day fathers, are helping out. They're getting up with the feeds in the night. They're um, giving their wife or their partner a night off and doing the feeds, and then they're showing up at work the next day expected to do a massive presentation or expected to work a back-to-back -back shift or, you know, they're working really, really hard and they're sleep-deprived as well. That puts stress on their 
immune system. It puts stress on their HPA axis in terms of, you know, physiological stress. They have a lack of recreation time as well because, you know, they really want to give their wife recreation time because she might be at home with the children more so than he is and so he's losing a lot of his hobbies. And then there's the there's worry there as well. So it's not just the mothers. You know, there's a big area of men's health that I think opens up when they become fathers. It's interesting because I think because of the way the whole topic about mental health is starting to open up via other avenues, like Are You Okay Day and Beyond yeah, Blue and yeah. men's health initiatives, I think that the trickle-down effect is probably going to be absorbed by programs that are for new fathers. Um, one came up a few years ago. I don't know if it's still running, but it, it started here in Sydney and it was called Beer and Bubs at the Pub. And it was about a bit like a mother's group, but it was for fathers. Yeah. And I don't, they obviously didn't take the children, but it was just about getting together with other fathers at the pub. So in a, an environment that they might feel a little bit more comfortable in, something that they might actually go to, and they're starting to connect with other fathers and make new friends, and they're getting some recreation time in there, which is good, um, you know, as long as they're not drinking to excess. But all of these things can can be really beneficial. So how can we look after ourselves physically, though, with, with regards to, you know, you mentioned, you know, the shift work and the helping and things like that. I remember that Lee and mm-hmm. I eventually got down to a really good routine because Lee's a morning person and I'm an, a night owl. And mm-hmm. so I would do the, the late night feeds and uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee would yeah. get some rest there and Lee was quite happy to wake up in the early hours of the morning when I am dead on my feet. And that worked for us. But it's never a yeah. perfect um, handover. <laughs> no, no, of course not. It's never perfect. And the the other thing is you can talk about this before the baby comes along, but that whole idea of what you're going to do can be completely changed and turned on its head when the baby's born. So, so it's a matter of working out. And, and you may not get into a routine for many months. Those first few months are beautiful, but they're also horrendous, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because you're, yeah, because you're, for the first few weeks, if the mother's breastfeeding, it takes a long time to establish breastfeeding. Yeah. And um, I have always, this is what, I, from my own experience having, I've got one little boy, I just found that it took a long time to establish a routine and the routines that were sort of being prescribed by, say, midwives or whatever, I just, I couldn't, the more I tried to force our life into that routine, the more upset I became and the more stressed I became. So when I decided that I was just going to let our family situation dictate our own routine, things got better. Um so I think that's really, really important advice for any new family, whether they've only got one baby or it's a new baby, a sibling or whatever, um, really sitting down and looking at where, like like you did, the, the areas that you find um, are easier to cope with, you absorb that. It might be different for your partner. I was... Um, I'm not a morning person, but my husband is. So he sort of did more of the work in the morning than I had to sleep in, yeah. um, whereas I sort of did more at night. Um, I also demand fed my son for the first 
12 months. So I'd get up a lot during the night because I I could cope with that. My husband was off at work um, the whole time. So I felt better that he wasn't waking up during the night so he could go off to work and I sort of felt better about him being off at work and coping that way because I knew he'd got some sleep, whereas the next day I could sort of take it easy a little bit more and just not do too much or not expend too much energy the next day if I'd had a big night with my son the night before. So communication is really important between the couple, working out what are your areas that you think you can cope with. Um, Working Teamwork is so important. But then outside of that, it's working on, well, we can't do we can't do everything on our own. Most of the time you are. 90% of the time your village is you and your partner. Um, sometimes it's a single parent situation and your village is you and that's it and that's very, very hard. Very hard. But it's, yeah, it's just a matter of realising what the priorities are. You, your health is a priority. I mean, I'm talking from the perspective of being a naturopath, so, but not everyone that's in this situation is going to be thinking about their health, let's be honest. Mm. They're just going to be putting their head down and, you know, getting on with it. But you can't get on with it if you're not healthy. So I guess the whole reason that I'm talking about this is because I think there's a need. There's a need to help people with their health in this phase. And whether it's nutritional intervention, whether it's lifestyle intervention, whether it's mental health, psychological, emotional intervention, all of these things can help. And if things are going badly for you, whether you're the father or the mother or whatever it is, if things are going badly for you and you're finding it hard to cope, you tell your partner, you you, you basically say, look, we it's almost like you need to treat it like you would an employment situation and it takes all the romance out of it, but you sort of need to sit down and communicate and say, well, here's, here's the problem. How do we, how do we rectify this? What things can we put in place for this to, for this to change? And it might, you might identify that your diet is crazy and going out the window or I just need an hour twice a week to get out for a run. That would really help me. And just telling your partner the things that you you need in order to maintain some semblance of um, (laughs) health and sanity. Exactly, exactly. So when we're talking about looking after ourselves physically, um, Mm -hmm. I've got to ask you, you you mentioned demand feeding. How, Mm. How did you find you got enough rest with that? You know, were you able to have the feed and then drift back to sleep, or were you? Did you find that you're wired after that feed for a little while? Did you find that you'd wake up and do other housework? H- how did you get enough rest to actually look after yourself physically? Yeah, look for me, I my situation, and it might be different for other people that demand feed, but my situation was that it was easier for me to get up and demand feed and try to do it to a routine. And I sort of found that I was tired enough and exhausted enough that I'd probably get back to sleep within 20 minutes um, after feeding. And usually it was a fairly – the older he got, the the shorter the feeds yeah. came. And that's generally what happens, as we all know, with babies anyway. Um, I guess what I found was it was the next day Having a, a rough night with demand feeding 
didn't sort of affect me too much at night. I could get back to sleep. But if I'd spent a lot of time awake, the next day I really didn't have a lot of energy. So I may not have the energy to, say, go and meet up with another mother that I'd met through mother's group or I might have just been too tired to do something. And where I found it hard was in that what happens the next day or that week during the day because because I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the energy for social interactions and Ah, I found that whole year quite socially isolating because for me in my head I thought, well, I need to conserve energy. I need to eat properly. I don't have a lot of time. In order to eat properly, I'm going to spend most of my time making sure I eat properly and that may have meant foregoing social interaction, which – for me, I found the hardest, yeah. to be honest, after becoming a parent, the social isolation for me, because a lot of my friends don't have children. They're still working right. and they haven't had kids yet. Yep. So the next day, I always found that harder than the nighttime stuff, but the only way that I could deal with it was buffering that with a sound, you know, the sound basis of, of nutrition. And... Um, like I said, everyone's situation is so different. So, you know, I can be talking about what I did and there might be some similarities out there and not everyone has the same experience. So, it's you know, it's always hard to give out this advice for new parents when they're going to forge their own way. But um, nutrition is a big one and definitely herbal medicines can make a difference as well. A big difference for for the male and also for for the father for the for the mother in in the relationship because um, as we know herbal medicines have a great influence on on stress the immune system and they are medicines so if something's coming up we can use herbs I guess the only thing is for the female if she's breastfeeding you have to be careful about alcoholic extracts and just focus on other ways like recipes and and teas and not going down that path of um, alcohol tinctures or decoctions. One of the things that I, I think surprises a lot of practitioners is there's there's a lot more safety data on herbs mm-hmm. in pregnancy than there is for herbs in breastfeeding. Yes. And and it's a yes. real conundrum here. It doesn't it matter about the tradition. It matters also about the medico-legal aspects of treatment. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, well, where do you lean here? Where <laughs> um, I've got to say yes. I, I lean very heavily on um, Kerry Bone's Herbal Safety Book. And I do believe it's very comprehensive. I think it's one of the masterpieces of um, practice. I think every practitioner who wants to practice herbal medicine should get that book at the very least. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and always erring on the side of caution and always safety first. So if you're not sure about alcohol and ethanol or a particular type of herb for whatever reason, don't do it. Mm. You, or there use are other teas. ways of doing it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Use a tea. Use that food if it's more of a culinary type food. We're lucky with the pregnancy stuff in that so many of the galactagogues are culinary. Yes. So you can come up with recipes. They may not be the nicest thing out there. You might be, you know, making some kind of a edible poultice. I call them edible poultices because they're like a bit of paste. And yeah, and you're just sort of putting it into your mouth like a um, like a paste. But it's... Um, it's a way of getting it in, but you don't have to worry about ethanol content. So your prescription is often um, a bit of a potion recipe that they can they can make up in their kitchen within five minutes. It's not something that you know you're asking them to 
make almond milk over a week and they say, I can't do that, I'm too busy looking after my baby. You say, well, this takes five minutes. You can make it, keep it in the fridge and have a teaspoon twice a day. What about things like, for instance, with mastitis? There's the good old, you know, cold white cabbage leaves. There's, um, you know, various probiotics now for mastitis indeed. Um, What about things like, you know, dysphoric milk ejection reflex? What mm-hmm, about mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. certain, let's say, call them functional foods to mm-hmm. um, aid in lactation? What sort mm-hmm. of things do you employ? Okay. Well, first of all, for with mastitis, um, I think frequent feeding helps. That complete emptying of the breast, the correct technique, the attachment of the baby, that is all crucial. On top of that, things that lead to mastitis include things like unique anatomy of that woman's breast, sometimes physiological or pathophysiological determinants. She might have had a really poor immune system before she became pregnant. And I find that women who have a history of immunocompromise are far more likely to develop mastitis, chronic mastitis. Um, It may even lead to things like antibiotic use or stopping breastfeeding for that reason. So if there's anyone with mastitis you might be experiencing a little bit of it in those early days as you establish breastfeeding. And if that's the case, definitely get a lactation consultant appointment and go and see one because the if you get a good lactation consultant, the advice they give you is invaluable. And you probably find that you're breastfeeding for two years if you want to after establishing um, a good breastfeeding regime with a lactation consultant. The cabbage leaves and some of the more traditional um, methods are for, you know, topical relief, there's a pain relief. They help, but they're not going to be treating Treat. the underlying yeah. cause, as yeah. we know. Um, there's also, with mastitis, there are deficiencies associated with it. So vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, selenium and zinc, these are all linked to, or they're renowned for causing mastitis. And this might sound a bit funny, but in the dairy industry, mastitis is a huge problem. And they actually supplement the feed of lactating cows with these supplements because they know what a huge problem mastitis is. And I know we're talking about cows here, but... Doesn't Sometimes matter. we need to yeah we need to look at other species of mammals and think well what are they doing in the veterinary world what are they doing in the farming world in terms of nutrition and how can we apply that to say human mammals so yeah A E selenium and, and zinc deficiencies and, and D is yeah. the big one and if you're talking about yeah. um, dairy production you're talking about you know the exactly. massive dairy production of Illawarra Reds or Frisians or yeah. something like that yeah being supplemented Mm. so the other thing is I also think demand feeding I am a huge proponent of demand feeding but I also completely appreciate that not every woman can do this because she might go back to work soon or for whatever reason but there is so much evidence that as we are human mammals and Mammals are either spaced feeders or continual feeders. So spaced feeders are the mammals that they cache their young away in a nest, like rabbits and burrows, animals that have their young in burrows, and they go off and forage for the whole day. And their breast milk is really, really high in fat. And it they evolves that way because they're away from their young for such a long time, whereas human mammals are continual feeders. So we're apes. 
And we only have to look at other apes to see where we've come from. The baby is pretty much hanging on to mum constantly. constantly. And they'll just access the breast whenever they feel like it. And continual feeders like humans have more dilute, less calorie-rich, 3 to 4% fat milk because we are supposed to be feeding them continually. So for me, um, when I read about demand feeding and I sort of threw the whole feed at 1 a.m., 5 a.m., 9 a.m., threw that routine out the window, I'm sorry to the beautiful midwife who suggested that to me. She was lovely, but I just couldn't do it. For me, the evidence is in our milk and we are continual feeding mammals. And if we can adopt that, if we're willing to do it, it's not easy. I absolutely empathise with women who don't maybe don't like breastfeeding, can't breastfeed, need to go back to work. But if you're in the position to demand feed, it will it it helps immeasurably with um, preventing mastitis. So it's good for the mother, but it's also very very good for the baby as well, and it helps with all things like colic and diarrhea and flatulence and settling and bonding and keeping your oxytocin levels high, etc. Yeah. So any work being done on um, a microbiota with you know demand feeding versus um, formula feeding over a longer time rather than shorter time? Well, most of the data really hasn't looked at demand feeding versus timed routine feeding. Most of the data around microbiota is still around C-section babies versus naturally birthed babies, which everyone sort of knows about that. Um, But yeah, not a lot of studies on demand versus routine. And that would be an interesting, definitely an interesting PhD for someone if they're interested in breastfeeding and interested in the um, microbiome because that's our natural evolutionary practice. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the uh, microbiome of babies fed that way is at certain time points over a lifetime. Mm, absolutely. There we go. Martin Blazer, if you wouldn't now. mind being the professor <laughs> yes. on this one, that'd be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> we need some supervisors and some students getting uh, onto this. Yeah. Yes. Annalise, what about scope of practice here? How are mm. naturopaths placed for looking after mm-hmm. couples, um, indeed, mm-hmm. I would say now family units, in the fourth mm-hmm. trimester? Perfectly placed. This is, And this is something that I believe in, and this is why I talk about this topic a lot since having a little boy, because naturopaths and nutritionists, holistically trained professionals who use herbal medicine, nutritional medicine, are perfectly placed to fill this hole. There is a gap in... The, I don't want to say the market because it's not a market. There is a gap in humanity. <laughs> There's a gap in medical practice. Yeah, yeah. There is a need and it's not being filled by the medical profession for many reasons and it's it's, it's not intentional. They're, they're busy doing other things or for whatever reason. They also don't have the training that we have. They don't have the training in nutrition and herbal medicine. We are the perfect profession to be filling this need and you don't need extra training in um, postnatal health protocols per se. It's obviously good to do your reading and attend seminars but 
really it's just about looking at the the couple in front of you and think, okay, well, here's, here's a mom, here, here's a dad. Tell me what your issues are and just start supporting them. I, I, in an ideal world, I would love to see someday in every GP practice a naturopath and a nutritionist focusing on fourth trimester services for new parents. That's what, if I could get wow. that happening, that would be the perfect thing and make it part of primary care. And the thing is, even though I'm saying there's a need, there are naturopaths who are already doing this mm. already. You yeah. know, they've geared their practice towards this. There's a lovely colleague of mine here in Sydney who's doing this, two of them actually. One's a naturopath, one's a naturopath doula. They're doing amazing things with this. But they're, you know, they can't help everybody. There's there's only one of them. Yeah, and geographical you know, limitations, yeah. Exactly. So it's, it is a need and I think we are the profession to go out and and do it, but it's a matter of communicating with the medical profession, yeah, and them getting to know us personally, not just necessarily as a profession or as an industry, but personally getting to know the local naturopath, meeting them, having a coffee with them, explaining what you do, showing them that you are safe. Okay, I think that's the thing we need to start building some bridges. Where can naturopaths go for further resources to become educated, proficient? And as you say, safe in the fourth trimester. I think there's a number of different things that naturopaths can, and nutritionists can be doing. The first thing is is having the confidence to almost to just do it. Um, if if you're not if you're not confident in this, I would start looking at resources that speak about how to treat. Um, thyroid function because thyroid function is something that is a little bit um, problematic for women after they have a child. So I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about clinical scenarios that mm. might require a little bit of extra study. Yep. So if you if you feel you need to do more work around thyroid imbalance before you start offering services in this area, go and do a bit more training and seminars in that particular area. Um, go and do more training in... If you feel that you your practice is particularly strong in the nutritional realm and you would know what to suggest nutritionally and, and with herbs, go and do some more work around possibly emotional issues, mental health issues, because that's a lot of what you're going to be treating. Um, if you think your your practice needs a little bit more of a um, a scope around people that work in this area a lot, try and meet with midwives or or doulas or any other naturopaths that you know that are working in this area already and see if you can get some kind of mentorship happening with them because they're the people that can help you with things like um, coming up with a clinical questionnaire that you can use in your clinic for how to um, how to identify clinical issues that are coming up in the practice. Unfortunately, there's not really a lot of books that I can recommend for people on this particular issue. There are seminars out there on, you know, what to eat for breastfeeding. They're fantastic. Anything that you can find in terms of seminars, CPE articles about, you know, galactagogues and what to eat for enhancing breast milk production, that's all fantastic. But actual books, they really aren't in 
there's no real sort of textbook on this. There are textbooks out there that are more midwifery type um, bases, and I think they're good. Mm. They're good because you can get some good insight into how the medical profession deal with this and some of the more, I guess, critical issues that can come up in the fourth trimester. So how to screen for postnatal depression, how to screen for thyroid issues, the, the types of blood tests that you might want to order. So I wouldn't discount even just going and buying or borrowing a midwifery textbook that deals with the first six weeks postpartum. That They can be very, very useful as well. Um, the other thing that I would suggest is if you are a parent and you've been through this yourself, you have expertise yeah. because you've been through it. Yeah. Um, if you're a naturopath or a nutritionist and you're not a parent yet or you may not want to be a parent and that you'd really like to work in this area, don't let that stop you because you can still work in this area. I've got quite a number of young female students who want to work in this area, but they haven't had their kids yet. And I say to them, don't let that stop you. Don't let that stop you. You just need to get educated and make sure that you've got the right tools in your clinic. So I think um, top three would be trying to get a mentor if you can. Um, try and do a bit of extra reading and extra seminars about breastfeeding and some, some of those medical midwifery concepts that are useful in that period of time and then just have the confidence to start somewhere and have a referral group around you get to know the local GP get to know doulas get to know midwives because it's a it's definitely a team effort and it's it's about getting people's clinical experience and absorbing that into something that you can offer. Annalise, thank you so much for taking us through that. It's obvious that you come from a point of expertise from your own experiences and you're now sharing this to, or for the betterment of your of the patients that you see. So I, I truly thank you for taking us through the fourth trimester today on FX Medicine. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks again. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards showcase the outstanding talent we have in the Australian complementary medicine profession. Nominations are now open for the 2018 Beamer Awards. For more information and to book your ticket to the gala dinner, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash B-I-M-A.